The Grazadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who is the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. It's good to be here, Rick. Well, we're off to a great start with the Dean's Executive Leadership Series, and today we're going to be visiting with Brian T. Moynihan. Tell us a little bit about your guest today. Our guest today is Brian Moynihan, the President of Consumer and Small Business Banking with Bank of America. And I think our listeners will be fascinated to hear his take on what's happening in the banking industry with all of the challenges that have gone on, the bailouts that have occurred. Right. Uh, it'll be a very very fascinating interview. I invite our guests to uh, sit back and enjoy this interview with Brian T. Moynihan, President of Consumer and Small Business Banking at Bank of America. Well, it's a pleasure today for this podcast to have with us Brian Moynihan, who is the President of Consumer and Small Business Banking with Bank of America. Brian, we're really pleased to have you with us. Thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, what we want to do in this podcast is talk a little bit with you about kind of your background and experience, and also, obviously, what's going on in the banking and financial services industry. It's clearly been a tumultuous uh, industry for the last year or so, and and I know you have some real interesting aspects on that. But let's start by talking a little bit about your background and experience. You grew up in Ohio, went to Brown University and uh, Notre Dame to law school. How did you get from the Midwest and from there into the banking industry. What was the attraction there from your legal background? I started off as a lawyer, and I started off at the time uh, doing transactions for banks, uh, buying banks. Um, I can remember in 1984 or 5 when the case came down a lot for interstate banking and the consolidation of American banking took place. And I spent a lot of years uh, doing that, issuing securities for, uh, working on securities issues for banks as a lawyer. And so eight, nine years into it, uh, the CEO of a bank came and said, uh, in a funny way, said, you're too smart to be a lawyer, and why don't you come join our company, and uh, we don't know exactly what we want you to do, but come do that. And it was a, a testimony just having done a great job for a client, and they said they want to come join you. And was that Fleet Financial Group that later became Fleet Boston? That's correct, yes. Okay. yes. Wonderful. And what was it about the banking world that you liked so much that you decided to stay, because obviously the majority of your career has been in that industry? People think of banking in a lot of different ways, um, some apocryphal and some uh, real. And in the last 12 months, I think uh, people have a lot of opinions expressed by a lot of people. Right. But what drew me to banking actually at the beginning was uh, it's really the people you work with. And uh, there are a lot of fun people there are my clients. And I got a chance for them to ask me to come do a leadership position and help them do all the deals and, and negotiate the deals. So it, it was really the people to track to be and what we were trying to do. As I moved through my career in banking, I'd say I went from more about the, doing the deals, buying the companies and putting them together to running business. And as you do that, the sophistication of our financial system and how it relates to customers becomes a very intriguing thing. If you see what our team can do for customers, it is really unique. And when you see it work and you see the customers that really like it in all our businesses, that's what gets you up in the morning. And when you see the associates you have and as you get the broader and broader leadership, you really have to feel good when you have great associates. So you went from sort of a M&A and deals and things like that to where it's all about you know, great people and great customers and seeing great, our great team do great things with them. 
Well, it's interesting that you talk about that because we do oftentimes think about the banking industry as being very much about the financial side of what's going on and the more technical deal side, as you say. But you're talking here about what a significant role the people play and the relationships play in that industry. And I think certainly when we think about sort of consumer banking, we think about that. But I'm not sure we think about that people side so much when we start talking about the corporate and, and the, the, the other aspects of banking. What was it about your experience that sort of moved you to that mindset or helped you to understand the significance of that people mindset in the banking industry? Um, what happened is as we moved through the generations of our company and got and had consolidated the banks, you came down to now you were more of a, a company that would be much like many of the other companies that exist in the world. You have clients. You have to grow those clients organically. You can't do deals. And so uh, back about 10, 12 years ago, a group of our colleagues uh, sat down and said, we've got to run this company differently and really started moving along the classic pa- paradigm of uh, delight your customers, delight your associates, delight your shareholders and how the intersection works. And really the eye-opening part of that, of a customer-driven, customer-in business, uh, is something that you, I started learning then and learned more about. And it's something that with banking was not as well known because it was much more about products, deposit products, checking products. And now you came to customers and the comp- competitive set became much wider that you had to be good, as good as a Fidelity or a Schwab or Merrill Lynch or whoever. And that changed your mindset. And so it was that change, I think, and then just studying through that. And, and frankly, as you look across customers, there may be different wealth strata wealthy customers, mass market customers, small companies, large companies, but the principles are the same. We help people do what they need to do financially to enable their lives to be great. And that, that starts a mass market customer, goes to the largest corporations. And if you start with those principles, it may be different how you do it, but it's that principle that makes you work. Your career has been marked by very significant sort of uh, transitions in companies. Right. So when you were at Fleet Boston, it was acquired by Bank of America. Since you've been at Bank of America, they've acquired Countrywide, they've acquired Merrill Lynch. Some very public and somewhat controversial transitions, but in the midst of all of those, you've been very engaged in all of those in significant ways. How have you seen the business sides of those uh, acquisitions uh come together and then the people side of those so and and how has that worked clearly all of those are very different kinds of uh, mergers and acquisitions but how has it worked and what have you seen as sort of the challenges there and what's worked well what hasn't worked the the sophistication that our industry and our company has learned over the years of having done many many transactions is that it's equal parts about the people Mm -hmm. management it's equal parts about the systems integration and physical plan integration and equal parts about getting to a common culture and getting across the road. So, so I came into the company through an acquisition. Mm-hmm. And I, in my previous life, had done all the acquisitions, done all the merge integration for a company for six or seven years. And then I went into businesses, and then I came into this company through an acquisition. But if you think about our sophistication, so each one of them is different from people's standpoint. Um, when you have investment bankers, mm-hmm. there's a different people element to the dialogue around that merge integration than when you have consumer bankers or corporate bankers and, and all those things. But you have to think it through. And as much as people think there might be a cookie-cutter approach here, every transition we do is varied by the criteria of what's the system or architecture we're trying to achieve, what the customer result we're trying to achieve, and what the people result, the associate result we're trying to achieve. And as you look at that, you get very different answers. So Countrywide is a, a very difficult time for the mortgage business, but we've got to get the systems con- mm-hmm. done. Merrill Lynch is a lot about the people and getting the investment bankers and financial advisors and the sales the traders slow down. The relationships those folks had. The relationship they had. <laughs> um, MBNA was a, a company which is dri- driven by a, a 
relatively small employee base into a big business. Mm-hmm. And so each one has different aspects. And, and, and something like Fleet had every one of those aspects because it was in all those businesses. Mm-hmm. So as you look through it, it, as much as people could from the outside would say you have a system, it is a system, but it varies within the system to make it apply to every transaction. They have to build flexibility in that to adapt to the uniqueness of each of those transactions to make them effective. And you do, and you have to have some non-negotiables. You have to get mm-hmm. to the best answer for the customer in the simplest architecture you can, or the more straightforward architecture you can from systems, or else what you have is too complex an organization. So there are some non-negotiables, but the art is to take those non-negotiables and the people issues and manage the right outcome. And so you'll get, you'll get reactions about, you know, this or that or that policy and that stuff, but, if, but over time people get used to it and life goes on. And because you came in to be of a by acquisition, it is sometimes unusual for individuals from the acquired company to transition and then move really effectively through the senior ranks of the company that made the acquisition, B of A in this case. What do you think it was about your leadership style, your approach to working in an organization that sort of allowed you to make that transition so effectively and really uh, continue to excel and grow in your leadership ability within B of A after the acquisition? A lot of it had to do with if you look at what Bank of America believes in, in the paradigm that I talked about before, the customer, to like the customers, to like the associates, to like the shareholders, and what I was trying to accomplish in the, in, with my teammates at, at Fleet Boston, it was easy. And, and we, as we came together as a company or as we decided to do a transaction with Bank of America, our decision was based in part upon the input of some senior colleagues and myself to our CEO at the time that if we're going to bring our associate base in, this is a company that thinks the same way. Now, it's a bigger company. Um, but but it thinks the same way, and that and that is a good place to bring your associates into. So we we did that. So I think once you're in, um, you know, if I told people at Bank of America that it's, it's only been five years, they would think it's been a lifetime because of the amount of experience you've gone through. But right. it's really learning the people, getting to know the people, getting to know the people from the top to the mm-hmm. bottom of the organization, making sure that people know that you're in it for the company and in it for the associates and in it for the uh, customers, uh, and then nature takes its course. Mm-hmm. And and so. I don't think it's that hard. You can't – the mistake most teammates make when they come in from an acquired company is when they try to say nothing should change mm-hmm. because it will change. And, 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 and so if you look over the years, the disappointments I've had when associates wouldn't change and yet they had the talent and could be successful mm-hmm. and they just would not accept certain things. And then I compare them against associates that were flexible and what they've done in our mm-hmm. company um, and, and the careers they're having, it's just tremendous difference. But you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to change. But – this is a great company, and we can, there's lots of great jobs and lots of great things we can do. Well, the last few years have been quite a roller coaster ride for the banking industry and financial services in general, and clearly some very dramatic changes on a lot of levels. Um, what, what the impact of um, obviously the mortgage issues, all that's gone on, the regulation that's now occurring uh, in the financial services area? As you kind of look at the broad landscape, and we can talk more about some specifics, but the broad landscape, what are the, the, the impacts going on now that are most significant for what you think is the long-term success and future of Bank of America? So if you had to pick two or three things that are going to be most significant that are going on, either in terms of regulation or the economy, what are those that you're paying the most attention to? Well, I think there's probably two or three trends. Uh, one is the trend that we're going to, have to, we're going to carry more capitals in industry mm-hmm. uh, and as a company. And therefore, there'll be less leverage, and that will slow down the activity that goes on in the economy. Uh, the second is that the consumer uh, environment is uh, going to be built more on fairness and transparency going forward than we got to over the last couple of years, and the combination of how people, how we ran businesses plus the economy has led to that. 
Um, and the third, which is not talked about as much in the current dialogue, is the international cooperation question. Um, you have companies, uh, you take the Iceland example on the one hand, where you had companies that are bigger than the economy, the Ireland example, the UK example. This is a very gnarly situation for governments to figure out because 20% uh, of our revenues are outside the United States. Um, and so, and likewise, a lot of our colleagues that. Then we have big companies operating in the United States, Citizens Bank in the Northeast owned by Royal Bank. Figuring out how you deal with all that and making sure you have a level playing field and making sure that the capital rules that one country put, puts in don't advantage people from outside or else you lose control of your banking system and your economy. Um, and that's going to be an interesting thing. I think that is potentially the biggest issue for a lot of our companies mm -hmm. that, that is sort of back there because everybody's focused on consumer, consumer protection agency or on capital or liquidity. Mm -hmm. But the reality of this, this issue is how is the world going to function is actually an interesting question. In and the long term, certainly. No, it's not even the long term yeah. because you're seeing uh, with some of the moves made in Europe by the EU now, forced divestitures of parts of companies, uh, the idea of uh, breaking down a competitive set. Um, you have to remember that it, to have a strong banking system in the United States used to be easy because we had the big banks. That's not true anymore. And so one of the challenges is, is you could end up with our banking systems in any country controlled by other, uh, other entrants from around the world, and that's an imp implication that this country hasn't dealt with before. Other countries have dealt with it. And so it, it, this isn't a long-term way. This is really honest now. So when you're talking about those kinds of issues, how do you, as one of the largest banks in the United States certainly and, and in the world, how do you um, engage with uh, both our government here in the United States and in governments outside the U.S. as well as your competitors around the world to, to work through that and get to a place where the system functions in a way that is effective on a worldwide basis as opposed to on a sort of a local country basis? And what role do, how, do you, how do you work with governments and other banks to kind of get to that place? Our attitude is, is we, we believe and support the reforms that are going on. Mm -hmm. It's good. It, it, it's good for the industry. It restores uh, trust, credibility, and all those mm -hmm. things are good. But what we try to do is provide information. Mm -hmm. We want the uh, policy bodies to understand the operational difficulties, frankly, mm -hmm. of what can go on. So go back to the Social Security, the privatizing Social Security. We, right. we, most people went and said, we'll manage the assets. We went in and said, no, you have an operational difficulty because these little accounts are going to cost you so much, no one's ever going to accumulate any assets. Mm -hmm. And, and so what we try to bring is that kind of skill. We've run big, massive things, uh, 50 million consumers, 60 million consumers. So we understand and try to explain to people less about the policy decision because in, in influence that, but more about, okay, if you make the policy decision, policy decision, what are the outcomes you ought to think through? And we'll help you think through those. Mm -hmm. We're unbiased. We will probably survive because our, one of our competitive advantages is that we can deal with regulation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other competitors that can't, I mean, in non-regulated industries. Right. That doesn't scare us. Um, we're used to it. We've been doing it for our entire 200-plus years. But the question is, is can you make sure that the people working on the policies understand that literally what will happen if you do this in consumer regulation, this this could happen, and this is how it would have to be applied, and this is how the 300,000 associates have to actually carry it out. And is that what we want? Mm -hmm. It's not that it's good or bad. It's that we want. It's right. that educational process is what we try to spend a lot of time on. Recent case that was on derivatives. We tried to get our customers to talk to Congress about derivatives regulation. Mm -hmm. They're tired of hearing from Wall Street about it, but we said customers to talk to them about the issues they'd have if everything were forced exchanges. And the customers talked to them, and the legislation changed. So our policy is to provide information expertise. And that example that you gave suggests that you feel that the, the government does listen, but what's your sense of the responsiveness of the government, the regulatory agencies both here and around the world, of really listening to 
your expertise and that of others that have operated in this area for so long versus there being sort of so much um, uh, kind of resistance because of all that's happened right. to thinking we should do it a different way and not listening to what the banks or the financial services industry is saying to us. Is there the right balance there of that skepticism and that looking to people for that have the expertise? I, I think I, I think they listen uh-huh. potentially more than they'll admit um, and because they know that they're, they're – uh, they're trying to solve the same yeah. problem we are, mm-hmm. and they know that the industry is needed and stuff. I, I think there's times when, uh, um, then, with the, the activities have gone on, you know, that we're going to uh, we have our accountabilities as an industry, we have our accountabilities as a company, and, mm-hmm. and we have to stand up to that. But I think that the government listens because when you get to the, this is how it's going to work, and this mm-hmm. is how it's going to affect the American public or the world, and, and things like that. We, our interests are exactly come. What's good for America is good for our company. What's good for the economies around the world is good for our company. And the government knows the same thing. So we work very cooperatively with them. We're very supportive of what they do. I think don't believe everything you read in terms of, uh, of uh, a given day. Is right. I think we, as an industry, our trade groups and stuff put the ideas on the table. Now, they may disagree with us, mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. that's life, and, and, that's what, and that's part of what makes this place great is that you have different opinions and you have ebbs and flows and activities. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, they do listen because at the end of the day, it's a very cooperative it's, uh, atmosphere beneath the surface because it has to be. Mm-hmm. We are inextricably linked. The fate, of a, the fate of the financial services system, the fate of America are inextricably linked. And we have to do a better job as a financial industry system to make sure people see that as a good thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. So on that last point, uh, because there is so much skepticism, I would say, among consumers about kind of banking and financial services, given all that's going on and the press that's been around that, how do you rebuild that trust and that sense of belief that what you're doing in the mind of the consumer is a good thing and and get past some of the the skepticism and criticism that's been out there? Well, it it was interesting because over the last several years I've gone from having sort of the wealthy customers and the affluent customers mm-hmm. to the corporate customers and the investment banking customers, now back to the general consumers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so each time you have to st- step in and, and sort of figure out what's going on. And we had, we'd noticed a trend where there was a beginning, there's a breakdown in the industry in terms of trust of institutions, uh, financial institutions by consumers. It's, it's mm-hmm. statistically out there. You can get it, especially around early this year. But at the same time, every complaint I get always starts off, you've had outstanding service. Mm-hmm. But I'm disappointed because you're charging this fee, you're doing this. And so what I what I looked at with the team and the team had been working on it was immediately to look at the question of overdraft fees. Mm-hmm. And what had happened to the combination of the economy and a combination of people using debit cards and, and payment techniques that 20 years ago weren't used and 10 years ago were, were used relatively modestly, you had uh, an impact that, that was having uh, on a small group of customers and is a small group that just came off as being not fair. And whether we agree with that or disagree with that, that's how the customers felt. And importantly, that, that's how the rest of the customers felt. So we fixed it. We capped the overdrafts and, and then allowed people to opt out so they can't overdraft. Now, there would be a part of people who would say, can people balance their accounts? It's, it's, it's just more complex than it used to be with online and, mm-hmm. and, sure. and, uh, all, and checkbooks and all the different payment schemes and all the different ways you can pay and all the different rules. So we've got to make that more simple for customers, and that's what we're on. But first we had to stop the question of whether we were being fair enough. Mm-hmm. And that's our, our relationship with our customers is shaped more around the fairness dialogue now than it is around uh, your value exchange or other types of theories you could do. it. And we made a big move, and the customers responded well, but most importantly our associates responded well. And we will continue to do that. We've done it in the mortgage area with a clarity commitment for a simple mortgage. We've done it with simple products in the card business. And you'll see us go product by product um, and make sure that we have a product, that a series of products that are completely understandable by the customers so that they 
feel they're being that, that that they feel that they're being absolutely treated fairly and getting good value, and then we can build the trust to do more with them. So we've talked a lot about your banking world that you're in, but you also do a, a significant amount of work with nonprofit organizations, and in particular, you've done an awful lot of work with children's organizations. So the Boys and Girls Clubs, the United Way, Youth Build Boston, and some others. Why have you sort of chosen the youth area to focus a lot of your sort of nonprofit efforts, and why do you think working in the nonprofit sector is, is an important thing to do with your time? Because clearly it's not like you have a lot of time to do those sorts of things, so you must think it's something that's worthwhile and valuable for you to focus on. I would tell you that I don't get to spend as much time as you'd enjoy on it, but I, I enjoy all I do spend. Mm-hmm. I think what you do with your time has to do with sort of your values and how you came up and how you broke into the thing. And so I, I have a great family mm-hmm. and I work hard. And then the other thing is I do is I try to help organizations. And I found on early on, I worked with a project called the Haitian Project for years mm-hmm. and, and things, that I like to pick organizations where we actually could have an impact. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily by your checkbook, but by your, by your time and effort and your experience, you could do it. And so that's what led me to some of these organizations. So Youth Build Boston, I... Uh, when I got involved with them, I was able to uh, create a program uh, with all my teammates at Bank of America. We would winterize homes with them, and that raised the awareness of their organization. Now, there's a youth build around the country, but this mm-hmm. is a local chapter. With the Haitian Project, it was the same thing. With um, So I've always tried to pick things that we should actually have a, an impact mm-hmm. yourself, and I, I think that's the duty we all have. Now, on the other hand, it is a situation which we just have to get people to spend more time on. Mm-hmm. Um, inner city youth what the boys and girls clubs do is fantastic but if you just think about that problem and the extensions of that problem with a several year modest economy the ramifications mm-hmm. i think are, are are difficult for this country and we just need to keep after and it's the grassroots organizations and what we could do mm-hmm. uh what we can do to help them it's important just when they need the most help the funding gets cut and stuff like that so it's important to everybody give and everybody go volunteer their time to help well, we certainly can relate to that here in L.A. with the large inner-city population we have and some of the challenges with our educational system, that there are huge needs in that area. And it's certainly good to see uh, individuals like you and companies like Bank of America engaged in that because I think it really is going to take sort of civic and corporate and educational institutions all working together to solve some of these really intractable problems. The team that works on that for us is has done an unbelievable job on a core issue that I have observed working with nonprofits over the year, which is what we call the Neighborhood Excellence Initiative. And what we do there is we actually take the same leadership development training we give executives and give it to the executives of those nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And often uh, what you find, is, so we give them grants to support the administration and development of the, of the nonprofit, not to build a building. And, and often people say, I can see that, that's tangible, I can give a grant to build a building or sponsor a couple of kids or do something. What the, these organizations often need is that professional development. So we've spent a lot of time on that. The team's done an excellent job, and I've spent time with those groups. And if you watch that play out, it is fantastic because it's it's like teaching a person to fish as, mm-hmm. as opposed to giving them fish. And that, that the ability of that executive director or those leaders in those organizations, once they sort of learn better leadership skills, mm-hmm. just helps them go on and do a lot better job. And, and it's been a great program for us. When you started responding to the question, you talked about uh, kind of the values that underlie what you do, and that drives the choices you make. Uh, in in the Grazi Dia School at Pepperdine, we talk about developing value-centered leaders. That's actually our mission statement. So if you kind of reflect on who you are as a leader and, and where you have gone through in life, what would you identify as maybe the top two or three or four values that really help direct who you are as a leader, the decisions that you make on a daily basis? I, I think... 
the, the core value you have to have is you have to care and you have to have people understand that you care as associates and, and what you do. Because if you don't, people want to work with somebody they like and believe cares in them. And I do care for the associates. And that's the number one value. And because in the end of the day, in a financial services business, we're zeros and ones in a computer system mm-hmm. and we're people. You know, and, and the people are what make us tick. And they've got to believe you're in it for them. You've got to believe that you're going to make them uh, better and do everything you can to provide an atmosphere that they can go. You've got to believe that you're going to have a diverse culture, which is, which is a major a value that mm-hmm. I've been working with the company for years, but the company had a lot of major work going on. But it's a lot about that. And I learned a lot about that. I actually, when people ask me sort of what was a core sort of aha moment, it was around the 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I was on my way to, the, uh, to our offices, which were right next to the World Trade Center, and saw the second plane go through. Oh, wow. And in the weeks after that, and just... Um, providing the role that, that we should have provided there, which was to go and let people talk through the amazing set of circumstances. The people were in the building by visitors that got out, mm-hmm. the people across the river that saw their, their relatives go down in the building that, because we had a shop across, a uh, trading uh, team across the river. Feel, the feeling of having the helicopters come in, people thought that another attack was mm-hmm. coming. Uh, and, and the belief that it was never going to be the same and there were people going to lose their jobs. I remember calling a group back just to talk to them. And they thought we were going to call them in and, and, get, and, and lay them off or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the belief that the securities industry was dead. Uh, just, in, But the resilience and recovery and the energy and what happened, you learned a lot about as a leader that you have to just absorb. You mm-hmm. have to be a sponge. You have to absorb the emotional situation and then keep turning it to a better way. I still think that that, that probably changed how I thought about leadership more than, more than everything. And it came down to... The team just needed people around that cared. And they, they didn't want you to – they wanted you to listen mm-hmm. about the experiences and, and stuff. They didn't want you to tell them it was going to be okay. They just wanted somebody to listen. Then they wanted to be told it was okay, and it was, it was an interesting experience. And so learning from that, learning from many experiences, I think that's the values. You have, it has to be care and a commitment to your team. You talked about that watershed event on 9-11 that helped you sort of see that in a different way. How do you instill that sense of care, that value of care uh, on a kind of a daily basis among – the associates, the leadership team at B of A, uh, when you, I mean, obviously when you have those major events, it, it plays out in a different way, but how do you instill that value sort of on a daily basis? Um, the, the company, that, and one of the reasons why I enjoy working uh, so much is one of its values is, you know, winning, and one of the values is winning, the trusting and teamwork and stuff, and it's not something that just appears on the wall, it's something that's in the, in the water and in the, in the people, so um, it's not hard, because there's an expectation of associates on the one hand, and an expectation of your leadership on the other hand. So with my team uh, and the teams downstream, it, it's it's part by example, it's part by talking to them, it's part by actually how we actually develop leaders and how we do 360s and other types of techniques to make sure that they see the full range of leadership. And and so this isn't left to chance, you know, that, that you can be a great manager, but you can't be greatly successful in a company unless you're a great leader and a manager. And a great leader has those the attributes we're talking about. You can be a great leader, and you may not be successful because you're not a good manager. So we, we train on this issue of what we call overleading and undermanaging or undermanaging uh, uh, the other way around. We actually work on it in our leadership development programs and stuff we do. And it's really a tribute to Ken and, and a process he put in over the years that said you can't leave this to chance. You can't assume as we went from 150,000, 200,000 to 300,000 associates that, that everybody is going to see that. Over time, that culture gets inculcated, but mostly it's through actually – it's got to happen naturally, but you give it the uh, care and feeding to make it happen. A very deliberate process to make sure that you get where you want to down that path. 
Well, Brian, it's really been fascinating having this discussion with you and certainly learning more about you personally and your leadership style, but also kind of your perspectives on what's going on in the banking industry and the challenges ahead. So we really appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Linda. Well, Linda, with Bank of America in the news these days, that was certainly a timely uh, interview with Brian Moynihan. Well, it certainly was, and he had some interesting insights about the challenges they face and the opportunities that he sees ahead for the banking industry. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how that all plays out yeah, for absolutely. Bank of America in the months ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, tell us who is next uh, for uh, the series. Well, in uh, early December, we have James Giannopoulos, who is the chair and CEO of Fox Filmed Entertainment. And we'll be actually hosting that at Fox Studios. So it will be a wonderful event for us. Well, let me invite our listeners to visit us online at bschool.pepperdine.edu slash Dells, that's D-E-L-S, to learn more about the series and to listen to podcasts. You may also find us on iTunes U and on YouTube. Until next time, thanks for listening. In a tough economy, investing in yourself is one of the best investments you can make. And an education is something that can never be repossessed, foreclosed upon, or lose its value. That's why now is the perfect time to earn your master's in business from Pepperdine University. Because Pepperdine's exceptional MBA programs are built around real-world curriculum, not just theory. So you'll gain knowledge that can be applied immediately on the job increasing your value in the workplace. During the past century, our country has survived over a dozen recessions. The economy will eventually turn around, and when it does, you'll be ahead with a degree from Pepperdine. You'll also have access to Pepperdine's extensive alumni network, career development opportunities, and employment resources. Visit bschool.pepperdine.edu today. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management.